being someone that people want to talk to or communicate with, whether it's talking or email, but people want to associate with you and want your opinion on something. And being, you know, part of great communication is obviously being courteous. That as a service provider, you're never, you should never give a vibe or a feeling to the person asking you for help that like why are you asking me or I'm too busy or I'm too special or I'm too good but you're just always welcoming. Welcome to the Council Podcast. I'm your host Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I'm passionate about all things in-house and I'm so excited to share insights interview key people in our profession, and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is Anthony Wright. Anthony was previously the founder and CEO of legal services and tech business LexVoco, which he successfully exited to LOD and Bowmark Capital in 2019. And that's where I first met Anthony. Since then, he's joined various boards with public companies and startups, while also being an early stage investor in innovative businesses across multiple industries. Anthony's one of those people that is just known for being a decent bloke. And as well as being an incredible professional and a fantastic lawyer, he's just someone that makes the in-house legal world and the, the broader business world a better place. It was a true delight to have this time with Anthony and I'm so grateful that he gave it to me because he's, he's pretty busy these days. So thanks again. This episode of Council is supported by Markster, my first sponsor. How exciting. Markster provides dynamic trademark services to modern in-house legal teams, empowering them to de-risk, optimize and more easily manage their trademark portfolios. I use Markster daily in my role and I love how easy and user-friendly the platform is. I have access to all of our trademarks and can easily see what stage in the registration process they are in. Markster's automated workflows and reminders do save me a lot of time and we have a portfolio of hundreds of trademarks, so this has been a game changer. Find out more at markster.com.au or reach out to Kate and the team. Their contact details are in the show notes. I would also like to thank InCouncil for supporting this episode. InCouncil provides people and tech solutions for in-house legal teams. They provide you access to a high-caliber panel of sole practitioners, which includes a lot of former in-house lawyers who can help you with ad hoc matters or ongoing support. They also specialize in helping GCs select, set up and integrate the best tools and technologies. Go to incouncil.com.au to find out more. If you aren't already subscribed to InCouncil Weekly, you are missing out. I always look forward to it landing in my inbox. It is a weekly email with bite-sized insights for in-house counsel and creative legal minds. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes. Anthony, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here, Mel. I am thrilled that we could kind of hook this one up because you have been on my list of dream guests for some time, (laughs) believe it or not. Well, we'll see how we go. I wanted to check where you're joining from as well. So I live in Victoria, 
Australia, just outside of Geelong, which if anyone knows the Great Ocean Road, just near the start of the Great Ocean Road. Beautiful. Fantastic. Do you get into Melbourne CBD March these days? I try to avoid it. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) Some of you would know that Victoria's had a particularly hard time with the whole COVID situation. And the times that I did go back to Melbourne for work, it was really quite, I hate to say it, but quite depressing. So Mm. work from home is just fine. Awesome. Love that for you. Yeah. (laughs) I think that that's happening in the capital cities, a number of them, same for Brisbane as well. People are kind of moving out to the the coasts and just coming into the city when they need to. And it's been a, yeah, quite interesting shift, but I'm sure it's the same in Victoria as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you my first question. I ask everyone, I think it gives a nice sense of you and what you care about. It's a random one. If you had a limitless credit card, but you could only spend it at one shop, what shop would that be and why? Hmm. Well, I guess my logical answer should be a grocery store. My illogical answer is probably somewhere like Bunnings. And I think until a while ago, the one company owned both. So that could work well. I love that your illogical is still extremely practical. (laughs) Well, I could build a house, which is something I'd love to do. And then provided I could have some food, that's about all you need, I think. Well, there's a sausage sizzle out the front for (laughs) anyone that doesn't know Bunnings, any of our listeners outside of Australia. It is essentially like, I don't know, heaven for anyone that is into homemaking or burb life, as I call it. For sure. And <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Well, that no, that gives us a great sense of who you are. A pretty practical kind of person and not here to muck around. <laughs> Love it. All right, Anthony, to the legal stuff, to the, to the meat and potatoes, I want to ask you, take you back in time a little bit and ask you about your first legal job. What was that? Where were you? What were you doing? Yeah, so I grew up in Brisbane and my first job at a law firm, I started at McInnes Wilson Lawyers, which is a, what would you call it, a top mid-tier national Australian firm. I started there, I was really fortunate that I started there when I was, I think, 19 years old. And back then you could do your article clerkship part-time provided that you were also studying a law degree at the same time. And it was fantastic. Like I learned so much. It, It really helped my university work, but I probably enjoyed working more than I did studying. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it was fantastic. Really good people thrown right in the deep end. I used to predominantly work in like litigation. So, you know, I quite clearly remember going to court as kind of a 20-year-old and attending call over and speaking to the judge and being really nervous and walking up Queen Street Mall in the middle of summer in a suit and tie, which was so impractical, (laughs) and you'd sweat up a storm. So that was my first legal job. Okay, so let me get this right. You could study and kind of kick off your legal training with your article clerkship at the same time. So then when you finished your study, you were kind of like ahead of the game is that was that the idea yeah so i finished uni so i did full-time uni and just kind of tried to squeeze in uni around working but i loved working so much that i ended up working five days a week and then when i graduated from law school i had to submit basically my timesheets for about a four-year period to the court as part of my application 
to be admitted as a solicitor. Okay, wow. And so I think the rough timing was that I finished uni oh, at the end of 20, like 2001 or thereabouts, and then I was admitted as a solicitor about three months later, which was great. Ah, oh, you hit the ground running. Mm. See, there's that kind of usually now we find that that in-between piece for PLT, practical legal training, where, I mean, no one actually tells you about PLT, I don't think, when you start university. Yeah. And then you finish like, oh, wait up, I have to do another thing and pay some more money before I'm allowed to be a lawyer. Oh, whoops. <laughs> okay, I guess I've come this far. But yeah, I love that for you. Definitely got to, to kind of go straight into it. And, and the litigation as well. How did you enjoy that, that back-end work, the, the court kind of drama and, and all of the, uh, I don't know, posturing and excitement amongst, amongst the lawyers and the barristers? It was really good because I think that's kind of, depends who you talk to, but I think that's a really pure form of law and Mm. if you ask a a 10 year old well what is a lawyer or a 15 year old probably they think of someone going to court so you know with the court also comes the court library and all of the the books and all that kind of stuff so i thought it was really great but Mm. what it did do i then became an in-house lawyer in my mid-20s or um, yeah kind of mid-20s the commercial litigation experience was just so invaluable then when i tended to be more of a corporate commercial lawyer drafting contracts and giving advice on contracts because you get to see kind of the end result of where things go wrong and why they go wrong and the the actual consequences of people going to court and companies going to court Mm. is really hard work and really stressful for the the parties to the litigation so yeah i I thought the commercial litigation background was um was great Mm. to then become an in-house lawyer and more of a commercial corporate lawyer yeah, I really agree with that and because exactly what you said, you, you've seen what can go wrong. So then when you're on the front end drafting contracts and setting up deals, you're like, well, let's avoid what I've seen go wrong because that's entirely the value add. So I was actually told coming up through the ranks that if you wanted to go in-house, it was best to try and get that front end experience and you know be corporate commercial generalist in that way. I don't know who told me this, but... I don't know, people say things uh, because that was the way that you would be able to make the easiest jump. But in fact, I've found through this podcast project interviewing a number of people going from private practice to in-house. In fact, more often than not, they actually do seem to come from a litigation or a back end, which, which is, you know, interesting. I don't, you know, I don't know the data on that exactly, but it makes for a nice way to predict the future then if you've seen what can go wrong. So yeah, I love that. I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah, and I think it's probably an, Look, I haven't been there, done that, but I think it's probably better than the other way where you're a corporate commercial lawyer by trade and you've done that for a period of time and then trying to really understand litigation disputes, the Mm. the court process. Yeah, I found it really helpful doing it the other way, but at the time I obviously didn't know any different. It just worked out that way. Yeah, I love it. So tell me about that first in-house job. Where was that? Yeah, so I worked at a company called Trans-Pacific Industries Group, which was back then a really diverse listed company. It was listed in 2004, which was about the time that I joined. And it was a family business and then became a listed company. And it was incredibly diverse, incredibly fast paced. It was in everything from oil, gas, recycling, agriculture, trucks and buses. I love trucks and particularly trucks. So... That's awesome. It, it was it was fantastic. 
industrial services on mining sites and because it still was majority owned by the founder, there was still a lot of personal work as well, which was really exciting. Trans-Pacific then was kind of a, a, consequent, a, a bad consequence of the GFC where it kind of struggled through that period and prior to the GFC, from an in-house lawyer's perspective, it was super exciting because the company was acquiring other businesses at an average of about every two to three weeks. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was very hectic, but it was such a great learning experience. And wow. Definitely the mentality was pretty much not to outsource anything unless you really, really had to. Wow. So it was a very steep learning curve, but it was it was fantastic and my boss at the time was an american by the name of brad stam and stam mm -hmm. and brad had been previously he'd worked for bill clinton in the us he'd been the president of western star trucks globally so he had both a legal background but a business background as well and that's awesome he, he was extraordinary he didn't say much but when he did uh, everyone listened and you know I recall going to some meetings with partners of top firms and even some of the best QCs in Australia and there'd be conversation Brad wouldn't say too much but then he'd ask a really good question and then one of the QCs or one of the partners would just sit there and go mm, let me think about that and I'll have to get back to you oh wow so it, it was, it was a, a great a hectic period but it was fantastic Wow, that quality over quantity of, of speaking in a meeting, hey? <laughs> Absolutely. So tell me about your favourite legal job. If we look back over the entire span of your career, what really jumps out as just, you know, just being one of the best? Yeah, well, as I just touched on, I, I loved that time at Trans-Pacific Industries. And then for different reasons, um, so I had my own business called Lexfoco, which was partly a law firm going back a few years ago. And, and I loved that for different reasons. So I still got to be a lawyer. I didn't do as much legal work as a full-time lawyer, but because I was working with other lawyers, my teammates, my, I'm not so fond of the term work colleagues, they were my teammates and people like Jemima, who you mentioned earlier on, I really loved that for different reasons. So yes, we could talk about the law and issues that clients were having and, and how to do something differently to help the client. But when you're kind of working in such a close-knit team of like-minded people, it brings uh, a lot of enjoyment. Yeah, for sure. Well, I always thought the Lex Foco crew were like the coolest gang around. <laughs> I, was, I, I met you and, and Jemima both when you were at Lex Foco. A number of years ago and we did we did work together in, in different capacities and I always just thought like these guys are so cool <laughs> you just seem to have a, a real blast and, and work hard and kind of play hard mentality so I um I can see why that that jumps out as being you know a, a firm memory of yours yeah I, I don't know if I've told you this but I am a golf widow <laughs> and it it is my lot in life and uh, I need to ask you about your time working in the golf industry as a legal counsel. That is just the coolest. And I promised my husband I would ask. Yeah. <laughs> tell, me about, uh, tell me about the PGA. Yeah, so I left Trans-Pacific for what I thought would be my dream job. Like I love sport. I love playing sport, watching sport. A lot of the things that I've learnt, which hopefully I've applied to work, comes from what I've learnt through being in sporting teams. 
rightly or wrongly. And so when I saw this job, it was actually, so I wasn't in a legal role. So I saw a job for the PGA Tour, which is the Professional Golfers Association, as their commercial and marketing director, which is basically trying to run professional golf tournaments and and run them profitably in Asia Pacific. And I learned a huge amount for that kind of few few years that I worked for the PGA Tour. I learned about a lot about sales and marketing, which is invaluable no matter what your your core trade or skill is. But what went from being a passion to something that I used to love playing and love watching became a job and it actually became difficult to play and watch. But yeah, it it, it was great. Like trying to negotiate with player managers and organising, you know, major events like the Australian Open in Sydney when, you know, the likes of Tiger Woods is there, Greg Norman's there, you know, really some proper rock stars. And so that was a lot different than just working at a computer. Yes. Did you miss doing the legal work when you sh- when you shifted out of it? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and that's what actually was probably the catalyst for me. Then starting the Lex Foco business, that I learned, as I said, I learned a huge amount working in a commercial marketing role in sport. But what it actually made me realise is that I love being a lawyer, but not five days a week. Right. And so, yeah, it, it, it didn't, it didn't. Like I, I missed some of those interactions, whether it would be trying to put together a transaction or try and help someone that's got a dispute with, you know, a supplier or something like that, which happens every day in business and just trying to guide people in the right way in terms of the legal and governance and risk side. Yeah, that's awesome. So if we, we, we've touched on a few of your adventures throughout and if we think about you starting as an article clerk and kind of getting into the law around 2000, 2001, you know, we're, we're kind of 20, 21 years later. It, time flies, right? <laughs> time flies when you're having fun. I, I'd love to ask you about some of the resources that have helped you along the way in your legal career. That's, that's a really broad question, I know, but what, what's jumped out as being invaluable in the last couple of decades? There's one thing that I'll actually never forget, and I've said this to a few of the people that I've worked with over the years, that when I started in-house, I was very young, very naive, didn't know much, and the, the, the law firm that was kind of the panel firm, I won't mention the, the law firm because it might get someone in strife, but they knew that I didn't really know how to draft a contract or, or you know, there was a lot of sale business transactions, sale and purchase agreements. And so they gave me access to their entire precedent template database. Oh, no way. <laughs> which was gold. The dumbest thing was that when I finished at Trans-Pacific and worked at the PGA Tour, I thought, well, I'll never use, I'll never ever look at a legal contract or a legal template. I won't need a a shareholder's agreement template again. So I didn't bother, not that any lawyer ever does this, Mel, but I didn't bother copying anything. So (laughs) that was invaluable. But really, like the best help that you get or the best resources, and and it's all about the people it's the people that i've learned from and the people that i've worked with and the people being clients and the people you work with they're the ones that kind of steer you in the right direction and provide you information and you learn little bits here and there about business or or personalities and when to talk when not to talk how to ask questions it's it's the people that you associate yourself with so that that's probably it sounds a bit kind of trite but i think that's that's the most important thing 
Nah, it's true, man. We we are in a, a people business, you know, and like I think the fact that they even let lawyers come into companies is because, you know, they trust and there's rapport and it's built on relationships and, and you know, kind of adding value. And yeah, I, I totally, totally agree with it. We have to spend a lot of time in the job. So it's nice to do it with people that you enjoy spending time with. You know, I think that's kind of um, seems to be just outside looking in perhaps a, a guiding principle for you in your career and, and hanging around. I know some of lots of the people through Trans-Pacific and like Svoco and, you know, you've just got a great crew of people from what I can see. So that that totally makes sense to me for sure. Yeah. And, and even that, like the first thing I mentioned then was about getting access to precedents and templates well really it's about knowing the right people to to ask you could, i could get those today i'm sure if i needed a template about for something it's just about asking someone for some help yeah that makes sense no i get it it's the the access to the information and and you know more more so than ever it's so easily available as well you know you can really quite get your hands on some some solid templates through i know acc has a great resources page and it's all very kind of friendly and open open source almost. Absolutely. So I, I like that. I, I think, you know, the, the days of kind of holding all of these things behind the closed doors of the big firms and paying whatever thousands of dollars to have access to it as a client, the access to those, it's almost access to justice situation. I, I can see the industry is absolutely shifting. And yeah, people are creating entire business models around templatizing and and it works for a big chunk of pretty straightforward work. So no, I get that. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to kind of deep dive a little bit from here into an area of the in-house legal profession that I know you as a, as a real thought leader in, and that's all around the legal operations and essentially looking at something and, and asking, well, you know, how can how can we do this better or more efficiently? So in a number of your roles, particularly in LexVoco and then LOD, I know that that was a real focus for you and your team looking at in-house teams and I guess kind of fixing stuff. <laughs> it's problem solving. I'm, I want to kind of pick your brain a bit in, in that and ask around the, the question really is how do the leading in-house teams that you've seen measure efficiencies and then demonstrate their value to the rest of the business? Yeah, look, I, I think this topic about efficiencies, demonstrating value, I, I think a lot of it is completely overdone and overbaked now. But on the flip side of that, I think a lot of people, not just in-house legal teams, but professional service providers or just service providers generally, take these things for granted and make assumptions and think that they are being efficient and they're, they're demonstrating value in inverted commas to their relevant clients. So I think it's really important and I, I'm, I'm not fond of the terminology legal operations. To me, it's all just about continuous improvement and striving to be the best that you can and not just you personally or an individual, but the team and the organization that you're working in and for. So it's just always striving to understand what could be done better and better for the team's sake, better for the organization's sake and better for your own sanity and well-being as well. I'm intrigued by what you said about it being kind of the concept being overdone or kind of overbaked. Is that to say that, you know, it's it's saturated now and people are just kind of throwing the words around without any real action or what is what is that? kind of coming from for you it's hard to say a lot of a lot of the time 
I mean, these these things, these in, improvement initiatives and strategies to do things differently happen behind closed doors. And, and that's the way it should be. Mm. Like these are in-house teams working in organisations that are trying to improve. Really, it should be head down, bum up, get the job done, how to improve, not necessarily talk about it and spruik about it on social media or things like that. So it's really about and again, I think go back to the basics, really understand how, how does an in-house team or an in-house lawyer achieve these things. The starting point is I think there's two potential starting points and each in-house lawyer needs to work this out for themselves based on who their, their clients are or who employs them. The first starting point can be asking the, the clients about what they really care about, what the organisation really cares about in terms of performance metrics and in most organizations that'll be about improving profitability i.e increasing revenue decreasing costs doing things faster doing things with less resources all of those common things the other starting point which i tend to think is probably a bit better because it will save your client time is that you as the in-house lawyer draft your own performance metrics based on you know time quality cost those kinds of things and then engage with the your internal client and get their feedback about what you're thinking rather than i mean the flip side is it's not that great and it's not a good use of time when you just start asking your internal clients open-ended questions they're like um shouldn't you know this yeah <laughs> kind of mentality so go there showing that you've thought about these things, showing that you've turned your mind to what they should care about or, or are likely to care about, and then they can either validate it or perhaps suggest some changes here or there. Yeah, for sure. So I guess what, what you're kind of getting at is uh, two things I think um, I'm hearing from you is the, the the mindset is important and not to overcomplicate it. Just, you know, think about it from a continuous improvement point of view and, and, and show up, uh, you know, and that goes for your personal life, professional life and, and just trying to look at maybe how things could be a little more refined, you know, daily, weekly, and, and those things absolutely add up. And then going to the business and, and not not necessarily assuming what they value. Although, you know, if you've been in the business for a while, you can you can probably guess what they care about. Like for me, it's, it's yeah, it's an, if I ask, I, I don't even want to ask my sales team because I know exactly what it is. You know, we've got a service level commitment of three business days and they're going to want two. So, <laughs> and, and <laughs> so I think that that's, um, yeah, super, super interesting. And I'm sure you've seen lots of teams do it differently and do it in different ways but if they were engaging with you anyway they were probably already thinking in this way it's probably the ones that aren't coming to to you for help over the years that maybe have self-selected out of continuous improvement initiatives <laughs> it's not for everyone it, it certainly depends on the business drivers and if if the business isn't pushing well I don't know there's different different ways to practice that's for sure absolutely yep so if we, we look to the, the kind of the future from here, I'm kind of jumping all over the place if I look at the questions that I've got left to ask you, but we're going in the future. I, I want to ask around key trends, things that are intriguing you, things that are kind of getting your attention for, you know, the next four or five years in, in the legal industry and, and then kind of in-house more specifically. My gut feel on how to answer that is to say not much will change. Oh, interesting. And that's quite cynical but i mean time flies right so about 20 years ago when i 
started doing lawyering. We emailed documents to one another. We did mark up. We spoke on the phone. Has much changed in the last 20 years? Uh, like for sure, a bit has. And you said it earlier on about the access to information has definitely changed. But we still mark up documents. We still email each other. We still talk to each other about what needs to change and why your client's right and the other client's wrong, and et cetera, et cetera. But so like in the next three to four years, how much is really going to change? Probably there will be more access to information. Like in this, under this heading of legal operations, what definitely has changed in the last few years with legal continuous improvement or legal operations is the access to information. What happens now is that pretty much every in-house legal team knows what good looks like or what is best practice. So they know what they need to do. The question then becomes, have they got the time and the resources to, or, or the motivation to do it? Whereas a few years ago, there was quite a lot of uncertainty about, well, what do we need to do differently? I think people in in-house now, they know what they need to do, they've just got to go and do it. So the information flow will no doubt continue to accelerate over the next three, four, five years. The other part is that because legal tech is still relatively new, there's a lot of competitors out there that are either startups or they don't even exist yet, but they might in two years. So I think we'll probably start to see by 2025 some consolidation in the legal tech space and some real, some of the different categories, whether it's cyber security or blockchain related contracting or matter management systems, data analytics, there'll start to be some standouts, I think, within the next few years. Whereas now there's a lot of different players and as a client, I'm sure it's quite overwhelming trying to decide which contract management system to get or... Oh, 100%. That was a whole project, you know, as you know. <laughs> and in the end, vendor selection came down to some of the key points, but even then it was like yep. pulling pulling apart minor issues because they all kind of started to look and feel the same to a point, to a point. So yeah, I totally see that. And I'd love to ask what you think about, you know, like a bigger picture enterprise solution, maybe something coming in from, you know, an Oracle or a Salesforce or that kind of big picture and, and starting to, to pull in legal tech upwards to to like that bigger piece. Is that is that something you've kind of thought about? Yeah, I think it's inevitable. So, you know, SAP, Microsoft, Google, like all the the biggest or some of the biggest organizations in the world organizations companies are starting to realize that there is not only a huge amount of financial information or numbers that they need to collect manage analyze do something with but information which inevitably goes via the legal department so can't get rid of us we just put ourselves into everything yeah happy days well <laughs> not always <laughs> i think definitely that the, the bigger enterprise systems will start to include these types of kind of legal specific technologies as part of an overall package. Yeah, for sure. What do you reckon about the kind of work from home flexibility trend that's kind of come out? Oh, you know, oh, we've been working from home or we've been doing a hybrid model for two years now. Mm. What do you think about employers broadly allowing that to happen or maybe being forced to like what's what's your general sense of of that trend oh look it very much depends on the type of organization that you work for and bearing in mind always trying to put the client first so if the client for whatever reason can be better served and assisted by being in the same place in the office then so be it 
But the reality is a lot of professional services work, a lot of legal work, that's not the case. You need a phone, you need a computer, and you need to be available. So in theory, that can be done anywhere. It is tricky for team morale and trying to Mm. develop that close rapport with your teammates that it's a bit awkward on doing it on Teams or or Zoom or whatever. It's, Mm. It's not the same as having a coffee or just running into each other in the kitchen. Yeah, there's no substitute. Not quite the same, but it's still doable. And then weighing that up against the benefits of having more flexibility and whether it's for your family or your own health and well-being or just to do more work, whatever you want to do. In my previous business, and this was you know well before COVID, you know, we had a rule that was you can work where you want, when you want, you can wear what you want. There was only two rules. Don't ever let the clients down and don't let your teammates down. And well, the third one was don't let yourself down. So you figure it out. Oh, wow. Yeah, I love that. Hey, let's let's treat you like an adult. <laughs> if you've got half a brain, you won't take the piss in a situation like that because your teammates will know pretty quickly and you will know if you're taking the piss. Mm, for sure. Yeah, just don't let people down, don't let yourself down, and then you can work where you want and when you want. You figure it out. Oh, I love that. And I assume it worked well. <laughs> well, I think generally speaking, like, again, there's pros and cons of everything, but, yeah, people kind of respect and, and value that flexibility and being a bit more in control of your own calendar. But, yeah, it, it just helps and people are happier and then, it's uh, it's a snowball effect. That's awesome. I've, that's my experience, my current employer at the moment, and it's amazing. I've been spoiled. <laughs> and you don't take it for granted. Oh, hell no. Actually, any time I would ever start to get a whiff of taking it for granted, honestly, I just go and catch up with a colleague that's still in private practice. Yeah. <laughs> and I walk out of the coffee and go, oh, my God, I don't have to bill my time. I forgot about that. <laughs> you know let alone everything else but it's it's about gratitude and perspective and and these things are they they're important to different people in different measure but yeah no I love that that really that really does resonate so I want to ask what you think makes a really great in-house lawyer I think there's let me count five things and whether it's an in-house lawyer or a worker. First and foremost, intelligence. So you've got the smarts and that's like obviously the technical skills to do your job and you're better than average on the technical skill side. You don't need to be a genius. You don't need to be the ducks. You don't need to have got high distinctions the whole way through because that's balanced with obviously emotional intelligence under the heading of intelligence generally. And then the third part of the intelligence heading is, and this is what stands, I think, good in-house lawyers apart from PAC is really understanding the business context of what you're saying, why you're saying it, why you're being asked to do things. So yeah, number one, intelligence. Number two is being a good communicator. And that doesn't mean being a great writer or a great Mm -hmm. talker. It doesn't mean always writing and always talking and saying too much and writing too much, but being really good Mm -hmm. at listening being someone that people want to talk to or communicate with, whether it's talking or email, but people want to associate with you and want your opinion on something. And being you know, part of great communication is obviously being courteous. That as a service provider, you're never, you should never give a vibe or 
a feeling to the person asking you for help that like why are you asking me or I'm too busy or I'm too special or I'm too good but you're just always welcoming and you'll have your own subtle ways of saying no to people or pointing them in the right direction but you're always there and welcoming the third thing and this this should go without saying, and like I, I love listening to different podcasts and what's a common theme is when people get asked about how to be successful, blah, blah, blah. You can't get away from working hard. Like there's no two ways about it that you have to work hard. That doesn't mean you have to do it all year, seven days a week. It's just doing it when you need to and being responsive. And I'm sure you and the people listening get what I mean, but you can't just go through the motions and do, I think you know what I mean. You just got to work hard. I totally get it. Yeah. And, and you need to, um, you need to be intentional and focused as well and know when the level, you know, where you need to kind of like push the gas down, I guess, <laughs> and, and understand that, you know, most often you are, you are in a privileged position within a company that is fairly well paid by anybody's metric. Um, and you, at certain times need to kind of step up and deliver and, and, and put, you know, more, more, it might be more hours on the clock or work outside of your traditional nine to five. And that's not, that's not going to be for everybody, but you would usually suspect that, that people that are not motivated by that have self-selected out by this stage of either the law or university or, you know, whatever, have found another path. And, and to, to be honest, Anthony, I actually think that if you're like when people say working hard, it can have a bit of stigma to it. But when you're really loving what you're doing, or at least you're not like hating it, it it's, it's not hard in the sense of like the way that my grandfather had to work hard actually you know physically laboring building a railway from broken hill to dubbo you know <laughs> like i i can't ever say i've worked a hard day in my life physically but but sometimes there there is there again i guess it goes back to perspective and if you're enjoying what you're doing and you're working towards something that that feels like it's it's important to you for whatever reason then then yeah you put in the hours no i totally get it i was up like i started at six this morning because because you've just got global requirements if you want to work in a global company and i totally get what you're saying mel six is late for queensland that's right (laughs) it's it's early for my southern states, but not for Queenslanders. No, nah, nah, but but the thing is, we've got the the sun rising at like four, so four thirty. Yep, four thirty. <laughs> yeah, we need that daylight savings, but that's a that's a different conversation. But no, I totally get what you're saying. Sorry, I think by my count, you might have one more attribute. I've got two more. the The next one is being reliable, and it it ties in with hard work. It ties in with communication, but being reliable, and I. I tend not to use the word trustworthy. I think that should go without saying, but being reliable is for any teammate or any client service provider relationship, it is just client service 101 that if you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you can't do it, you say something before you can't do it and explain it. But kind of my absolute pet hate as a general counsel or working in a team is when a client would say, where's that at? Now, the client might have forgot, which is fine. But if you've dropped the ball because you're unreliable, a team can't function like that. So it's all about being reliable. And then the last thing, and again, it ties back into being emotionally intelligent, being a good communicator and being reliable is just being nice. 
and being, I used the word earlier on, is being courteous. And a lot of these things we take, you kind of don't think about and without sounding silly, you kind of need to think about it. And, you know, I think back to when I started as an article clerk and I would sometimes go to court and you've got, you know, really senior barristers, really senior lawyers, judges, etc. The best ones who got the best results were, yes, they were super smart, but they were always nice. And they, even when they were cross-examining people, they didn't have to be, I think you know what I mean. Like you can still get your point across in a nice way. So they're my five things. I love it. Dude, that is actual gold. And I think that this can be a separate blog. <laughs> that was so good. That is a seed of a book or something. Just just putting it out there in case you, you're keen for a project in the next year. But you're spot on. You're spot on. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, on that last piece, you and I both both come across people in, in networking and, and events. And you, you, you just, you meet a lot of people and you don't always remember what they said or did, but you, that, you kind of remember how they made you feel. And my word has that come back uh, in different parts in my career where I've had, you know, an opportunity to give someone a, a, an opportunity or a referral or, you know, I could have gone out of my way to do something, but I quite didn't because I just thought mm, they weren't that nice to me when I was junior or when I was a nobody or, or whatever. And and at the end of the day, you don't forget that stuff. You don't forget the partner that made you cry <laughs> when you were a grad. <laughs> just my gut. And I know that's uh, that's not a, that's a very common experience, but no, I, I think, I think more people need to say that, especially when, you know, uh, this audience is, is junior and early career lawyers predominantly, and it should go without saying, but, you know, you've, you've got to be nice to people on your way up because you'll meet them on mm. your way back down is what my dad used to say. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that, that's awesome. Yeah, and but no one's perfect. So oh, yeah. we're all going to have times when we're not nice and for whatever reason we're stressed, we're annoyed, we're tired, but at least being able to reflect and try and make that situation better or make good in other ways yeah it's just being self-aware and and trying your best to to be courteous and nice and and an apology goes a long way as well doesn't it It... and being genuine true (laughs) because the 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 opposite um is people see straight through it anyway thank you so much for your time i'm eternally grateful thank you so much for listening to this episode of council Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review for this show. Tell me what you'd love to hear more of and where you're listening from. To learn more about in-house practice, follow me on LinkedIn and Instagram.